0: It would sound well.
1: Living with your dog, living
2: with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Hi, welcome to Living with Your Dog. I'm Charlotte Peltz, certified dog behavior consultant. Recently, I finished reading Decoding Your Dog, which is written by the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. And those of you who have listened to me before know that I'm very, very particular about the proper use of the word behaviorist. These are veterinarians that have gone the additional, I think, four years of training to become certified veterinary behaviorists. You'll notice that when I announce who I am, I say I'm a behavior consultant. Now, there's nothing illegal for a trainer to call himself or herself a behaviorist, but I consider it unethical. So anyhow, this is the ultimate experts explain common dog behaviors and reveal how to prevent or change unwanted ones. This is decoding your dog. And it. the editors are Deborah Horwitz. She's a doctor of veterinary medicine. John Sirabassi also, and Steve Dale, who's internationally acclaimed, particularly in the world of kitty cats. So when i Read the book. I was really impressed with the foreword and the preface. And this foreword is by Victoria Stillwell. Some of you may have seen her on television. She's British and she did the foreword for this book. She's a dog trainer and author, editor in chief of Positively Common Positively.com and host of It's Me or the Dog. And here's what she has to say I'm a dog trainer and behavior consultant. Now here she is internationally acclaimed, and she's only calling herself a behavior consultant. I'm not of a veterinary behaviorist, although good dog trainers spend a lot of time dealing with canine behavioral issues and need to stay abreast of what the scientific community is continually discovering about how our canine companions think, feel, and learn. There is a difference between trainers and behaviorists. Good trainers rely on the medical and behavioral expertise of the veterinary and scientific community so that we too can use hard science to unpeel layer after layer of that unique and wonderful animal we call man's best friend. This task is never ending, and we are constantly learning new and more effective ways to harness the power of scientific knowledge in our work with dog owners on the ground. Sadly, we live in an era when, as is the case with most generational shifts in thinking, there's a good deal of resistance when it comes to employing the concepts and ideologies that science is proving for us regarding our relationships with dogs. For decades, we relied on since-disproved theories of canine behavior to teach our dogs, and we ended up using misunderstood and misapplied concepts of domination and alpha-wolf and that's in quotes, theory, as the most natural and effective ways to control them. This put the emphasis on punishing punishing dogs for misbehaving, rather than teaching them what to do in different situations. And we talk about that regularly, what to do. But gradually, we began to see the light. Although dogs descended from wolves, dogs are not wolves, and they behave very differently. Dogs are not on a quest for world domination if left unchecked, and we don't need to be their dominant pack leaders. Using harsh teaching techniques on dogs can, in fact, make many common behavioral issues much worse, or at least much more unpredictable. Not to mention the fact that confrontational methods cause mistrust and compromise a dog's ability to learn and can damage the human-dog relationship. Modern behavioral science has taught us that dominance dominance and punishment are less effective and more dangerous than positive training philosophies, even for the so-called red zone or very aggressive dogs, while conscience has told us that positive training also just feels more right. But in this debate over how to best build our relationships with dogs, proponents of the dominance and punishment-based old school training methods, are not going quietly. There's too much money, history, and mostly pride at stake for them to reverse course and cross over the dark side. And that's a tough combination to overcome. But fortunately for us and dogs, while you are free or not, like or you are free to not like what science tells you about a given topic, you can't really argue with it if the scientific research has been done carefully and methodically, you can certainly try, but chances are you'll (laughs) be wrong. The debate about training methods is over and positive force free reward based training has been validated as the most effective long lasting and humane choice by an outstanding scientific behavioral community that is made up in part of the very people who have contributed to this book As a dog trainer on TV and in private practice, I have dedicated my life to better understanding dogs, where they come from, how we got to where we are, and how best to give them the tools they need to succeed in our strange domestic human environment. Some of this is achieved by staying aware of common sense and our inner moral compass. But a lot of it also comes from understanding and assimilating what behavioral science tells us about our four-legged friends. Use the information you'll find in this book as countless other positive trainers like me have done in our careers, working with dogs, and you'll be building relationships the right way relationships built on mutual trust, respect, and love, instead of pain, fear, and intimidation positively Victoria Still. Well, ain't that right to the point. (laughs) You can't argue with science. (laughs) Well, and that's what I think is the most vital element that needs to be presented regularly stuffed down their throats, so to speak because (laughs) it's truly what separates us from this is the way we've all we've done it people and it works does punishment work of course it works it's been around for a very long time we're talking about how well it works for the overall benefit of everybody concerned and it's an important difference now we talk in terms of dogs having a what 98% of the DNA of wolves. They're not wolves. We chimpanzees have 98% of our DNA. We are not chimpanzees. we No one mistakes us for one. <laughs> and we cannot expect the dogs to fit this image. And it's interesting what the studies that, that surfaced now quite some number of years ago, 30 years ago or something like that, that was talking in terms of how wolves interact and therefore dogs do the same thing with alpha roles and all of that kind of nonsense. Those studies, so-called studies, were done on wolves in controlled situations, not wild family groups. And that's the way wolves grow up. They grow up in a family situation. Got mom and dad. This year's pups and maybe pups from two or even three years ago, they operate as a family. And it's like mom and dad in a well-balanced human world. Mom will tell you to do something. Excuse me, get it done now, and we'll talk about it later. So it's and we we reward and we reinforce and we want things to work pleasantly. So the alpha role sort of thing that where the dog supposedly pushes another dog down and threatens them. And they're supposed to be getting their belly up to show how vulnerable they are. And they're they're submissive when it's in a family group. If a youngster has gotten out of, out of line and is behaving very poorly, mom and dad may do a bunch of growling and so on. And the pup will lie down belly up as an, an apology for being so dumb (laughs) as compared to being put down by the so-called alpha. So when we're talking alpha, the real alpha is alpha bitch and alpha male, mom and dad. It's not a status. It's a a biological situation. And it operates very differently when you have wolves that are not in family gatherings, that they are captive they respond very differently to the world because you've got a whole bunch of wannabes out there. There's no mom and dad telling them how the world operates. So they're all trying to do things differently. And it's a completely different kind of behavior than exists with our dogs. Yes, they can form friendships. They do. They can have a number of dogs that get together really well. They sleep together. They play together, whatever. But they're not a pack in the sense that they hunt together to provide for offspring and bring this the 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 food back to puppies they are a pack in that they are a group but they are not a pack like wolves are so and dogs understand without a question of a doubt we are not dogs they Mm -hmm. don't look at us and think we are dogs and so we shouldn't expect them to treat us like dogs or for us to treat them like humans they are dogs and we need to have respect and i like what she has to say that you know it really hasn't been that long that we've been aware of the science of how behavior functions what its origins are and how we interact with it but again what she said and you know we say all the time we want to teach the dogs what to do they're living in a foreign world we're expecting them to live by human standards. And let's face it, that's a different species. You know, they're domesticated, but it's a different species. So they didn't come into the world learning what the word come means. They didn't come into the world learning what the word no means. We need to teach them. And incidentally, from the standpoint of the word no, I think you should bite your tongue every time you're tempted to say it, (laughs) because it's what no did you mean? No, don't jump. No, don't pout. don't, Don't counter serve. No, don't whatever it's not teaching them what to do. Now, in all fairness, I must say that if it were something critical that was happening, I might shout, no, but then I would get into training. Then I would get into training. So we may react powerfully to a given situation like you shouted to two-year-old, no, 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 don't go out the door yet. Wait, wait for mommy, wait for daddy. So then we're going back and taking care of things. So it's a, it's a very different thing. But again, a big point here is the science. We haven't for very long actually been studying domesticated canine science of behavior. And we're doing it more and more. Now, keep in mind that there are breed differences. talk in terms of the difference between a Chihuahua and a Great Dane and they're the same breed and they know they are dogs you know the dog can see a little white fluffy dog and knows in general not always that it's a dog I think that they are that's the most dangerous category for strong prey driven dogs they can mistake a, a little white fluffy thing bouncing along for a rabbit and and we have to be careful with that but in general Dogs know dogs. They know that's a cat. And that's not a dog. They know the difference right away. And they may never respond when they see small dogs running around, but show them a cat. And if they're not cat oriented, they'll let you know right away they spotted that cat. So we're, we're talking in terms of their perception of the world is something that we really need to be much more cognizant of when we're working to teach them and train them. So, I think that, that what she had to say, and, and it is it's a very good book. It's very basic. It's decoding your dog, by the uh, the um, college of, uh, college of veterinary Behaviorists. But it's it's loaded. The many many of these vets have contributed, and it's it's a very good um, comp- compilation of Jim McConnell says kudos to the veterinary behaviorists decoding your dog is a welcome addition to the voices supporting science there we go again (laughs) science-based and benevolent dog training read this book and your dog will thank you for it that's our dear patricia mcconnell so and you were reading
1: from the foreword is that correct by victoria (laughs) stillwell yes i I really like how she uh, mentioned the fact that The science is working and the other way can be dangerous. She used the word dangerous in other words like that a a few times.
2: Right. For example, you could probably very easily get away with punishing, striking out, hitting a dog, slapping with newspapers or whatever, a Cocker Spaniel. I'm not saying that they may not respond, but you could try it on a Rottweiler or such a strong, powerful breed of dog, who will give you—I don't think so—and you could get seriously bitten. Now you've also—you're—you're you're threatening the relationship with your dog. In other words, you're not teaching them what to do; you're punishing them, which makes no sense at all for something you never taught them not to do. The punishment is supposed to be teaching them that—that's not quite the way to go about it, folks.
1: And, and you're punishing them for something that they don't know how to do right and so they end up being
2: confused and fearful Uh and and very often some of these dogs will indeed respond aggressively and then guess what bad dog no really not a bad dog a dog that's trying to look out for himself and you're making him crazy so yeah as we've
1: talked about in times before dogs have can pile up their aggression. You know, one bad thing's happened. They're all like, okay, that happened. A second bad thing happened. They don't understand or whatever. It's going to build up and they can become aggressive. And then, of course, as you kind of alluded to, being mislabeled as an aggressive dog.
2: Right. It's it's not an aggressive dog. It's an act of aggression. And you're yeah, right no. about this collection. I've forgotten what the word is. We just talked about this recently. Yeah. But there there is a term for the buildup. And we talked about it from the standpoint that, okay, the dog snaps it at your daughter. She's never done that before. I have no idea what's wrong. Well, you're forgetting the fact that starting four days ago, she had diarrhea because she was sick and you took her to the vet and that was very unpleasant. She didn't like the medicine she was being forced to take. She didn't like the food she had to eat. Her stomach hurt. And she was not getting the kind of attention she needed because you were worried about her having diarrhea on your 400-year-old your oriental rug, so she wasn't allowed in the house. And she's got a pile up of all of these things that are totally abnormal for her in her world, in her perception of her world. And now the child that she's been wonderful with comes over and pokes her with a pencil and she says, that's it. I've had it. No pencil poking allowed today. I'm not saying that is okay for a child to poke a dog with a pencil, which is why you should never allow your young children to be with your dogs and you are not supervising them. It doesn't mean you're in the same room reading a book or playing with your iPad or whatever you're doing. It means supervising them so that you can teach the dog how to behave properly with the children and the children to behave properly with the dogs. Dogs need respect They need proper treatment. Children do not come born knowing that. And I I think we've probably all seen kids that pester one another and they pounce and they do all kinds of things. Well, they don't come with the same kind of teeth. Now, I've known children that have bitten one another, but they don't come with the same kind of teeth that dogs come with. And they don't come with the, the mental program to use those teeth the way dogs do. So it's very important that their behavior is supervised, again, to teach them what to do, preventing through management and direction what is inappropriate. So if you've got a a five-month-old puppy that's into the Zoomies, which is very common first thing in the morning and late in the afternoon, where they're just flying around the house, and you've got an 18-month-old toddler walking around who's going to get knocked down, I mean, let's be serious, folks. One of them goes outside. I don't care which one you put outside. <laughs> one of them goes outside.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you don't care which one. Okay. <laughs>
2: Depends on
1: what your priorities are. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So another thing that you had mentioned uh, while reading this forward uh, for the book, um, you gave an, uh, an analogy about a wolf and wolf's family and how if the dog, the puppy is uh, acting poorly, mom and dad put it in its place by barking or whatever. And the dog rolls on its back as if to apologize. Now, right. That struck me because I know we've talked about, you know, like, do dogs feel guilt and, you know, the tail between the legs and stuff and how we see it as guilt, but it's not necessarily guilt. So what you're telling me now is that they do have some sort of guilt. They
2: can't apologize. Well, it's I don't know that it's guilt. It's just that that didn't work. And this does. So we can't Hmm. be certain. Now, we can be very certain of many, many totally similar activities taking place in the, in the brains of dogs and the brains of people. We know about that. The Certain parts of the brain that light up for happiness and sadness and, and any number of other things. Guilt is something that's m- more difficult to measure. And I don't know that we have a guilt brain cell when it comes to dogs giving that so-called guilty look, it's mm-hmm. a behavior of submission that they're trying to scale down the threatening situation. They're trying to make themselves more comfortable and get you to back off. So we have different things, but when they roll over, this is a, a, a position of submission. It's showing that they are no threat. That if, Are they saying they're sorry? I can't answer that. I don't know that we can measure I'm sorry in a brain, the brain of a dog. But the dog has learned that other properly educated, sane dogs are going to respect that as an, okay, time out, we'll move along now kind of behavior. And it's, it's something that we cannot be sure, because again, as I say, I don't know that there's a part of the brain that lights up for guilt as it does for happiness and love and joy and, and, you know, any number of other things that are the same places in their brain as in ours. So we're talking in terms of, we are attaching a human behavior concept to some things that dogs do. We may not be on target, but they are serving a useful purpose. You know, we've talked in terms of calming signals, Pat Miller, for example, doesn't like that term, These are signals that dogs give out to those around them. There are people who think the dog is trying to calm the conditions. Some people believe the dog is trying to calm himself or herself. But there are cues to the surrounding conditions that life is not quite right. Some of those signals are lifting a paw. We think that's really cute. It's a message that basically says, let's chill out a little bit here. Let's calm things, please. There's the look away, the tongue flicking, the lip licking. There is uh, uh, actually just looking away or turning the head away with the eyes looking towards the threat. These, These are things that are ways that dog calm something, whether that it's themselves or the others around them. My feeling is that well socialized dogs read it both ways. In other words, you have a well-socialized dog, I have a well-socialized dog. Your dog is a pushy 10 month old. My dog is an eight-year-old thinking, please get a life. I mean, really, you know, you've been doing this for two hours and I'm sick of it. And if they show some of these signs, the dogs read one another and say, Oh, well, yeah, I guess I better back off a little bit here when they don't read one another. Well, guess what? You step in and do the separating for them so that they begin to learn that that behavior doesn't get you where you thought you wanted to go.
1: Hmm. So uh, it's when it comes to guilt, they may not, have the necessary cognitive skills to do that because it's a pretty deep concept and skill for us as humans but they are reacting uh, instinctually like you said it's an act mm. of submission rather than an act of guilt because in order to know guilt you have to be able to know the feelings and know that you hurt somebody else right and that's that's a pretty deep concept but to to just react and say, okay, I am going to change my behavior because that behavior didn't work is more instinctual. So it's not necessarily guilt. It's just like you said, a, a behavior um, of submission.
2: Yeah, with, with guilt, mm. we're thinking in terms of applying it to something that took place before, right? So when you come home and you have been negligent in properly addressing your young puppies toileting needs and you find a pile and you scold the puppy. The next time you come in and there's a pile and maybe not, and you look at the dog thinking wonder what's around and your dog looks guilty with the behavior of the tail tucked between the legs, if they fortunately have a tail, you're thinking the dog is showing guilt. The dog is showing a reaction to your behavior. The dog cannot Possibly, it's totally impossible to feel guilty about having defecated on the rug. The dog may feel scared that you have found it. And we talked about dogs eating their own poop. Sometimes they'll they'll eat it so that you don't get to see it, but they cannot feel guilty about something that felt so good to do at the time. They needed to relieve themselves, they did it, they felt better. Having poop on the rug is your problem. We should feel guilty. You should feel guilty because <laughs> you allowed it to happen. It right. could not happen if you were properly house training your dog. We so, didn't teach the dog what to do. Right. And we didn't address the puppy's or dog's needs to be addressed properly to be taken out as often as necessary, etc. So, it's something that needs to be handled in reverse. I need to do a better job of dealing with this, but you cannot, the dog cannot possibly feel guilty about something that felt good to do at the time. That's not, I mean, that's crazy. Okay. That's totally crazy. You can feel badly if you hurt somebody earlier, if you could understand that concept, I don't think dogs can, I think that they can understand all kinds of things that we don't really give them credit for, but I don't believe they can make a big connection between right now and something that happened hours ago. If you're trying to reinforce a behavior, you want to do it within two to three seconds of when it happened. If you want your dog to understand that was a good thing that they sat when you asked them to sit, if you're going to wait until you answer the telephone and come back with a treat you're just giving your dog a treat for coming back after answering the telephone has nothing to do with sitting. It has to be within like two seconds of time of the behavior for the reinforcement to make a click. Aha. It's because I did that. I get this. Let's try that again next time.
1: And so talking about what dogs feel, another question I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned that, you know, dogs are not wolves, so they don't, they're not pack animals. They don't have that pack mentality but they have become part of our family. In fact, just a couple of minutes ago, you referred to a dog as himself or herself rather That's than right. itself. So the dogs right. are part of the family. Now do, they're not, do the dogs feel are able to be aware of other family members, like say me, or let's say I bring in another dog. There's another dog in the family and those dogs are family. Do do you know well,
2: getting- first of all dogs recognize us there's no question about it all right they know we're not dogs they know that i don't know that they think we they they, are, they know we're people i i think that's stretching it but they know we're not dogs but they are family members there there's an and there is hierarchy it's not dominance in the old sense of the word but if you've got a group of dogs there's there's always going to be one that gets first choice at the warmest spot on a cold day and the coolest spot on a hot day and that doesn't mean the dog is dominant as a dog label the dog may dominate in that situation it could be that if it comes to a favorite toy oh well I'm tired I don't need to play with it right now go ahead I don't care I've got, I've got a great photo that circulates on, on my internet, of my Bouvier Moxie lying on the floor next to the bed with my son and daughter's dog, son and daughter-in-law's dog in the bed. Mm-hmm. Now he was half again, that dog's size. Okay. It didn't matter to him if that dog was in his bed. He wasn't having a big deal about it. If he had wanted, if he'd been in his bed and the dog came over and asked him to get out, I doubt he would have gotten out to allow the dog in the bed instead of him. But he could have. Yeah, I don't feel like sleeping in there anyhow. So go ahead. What do I care? So (laughs) it's it's an act, it's not a label. And that's something that's really important. An act of aggression is not saying that's aggressive dog. All right there's a big big difference and this is something that's very important because people don't get it. Yeah. One of the and things then you have a problem because you're putting a label on a dog and you're treating the dog differently than if you were treating a behavioral issue.
1: One of the things that I wrote down is that you had mentioned was uh, alpha is not a status it's a biological situation. Yeah and I think that's a great if, way to if put we're it.
2: talking if we're talking alpha wolf and, and alpha Uh, the awful wolf bitch and and dog that's that's status there's no question about it It, it's a label only applied to them because they happen to be mom and dad you know um and it's it's flexible in that Mm. they can declare with with clarity over some issue and say oh you know what the heck i don't care you know move away i'll I'll find another sunny spot it's all right (laughs) so we have they have more options than we have been allowing for when it comes to how they think and they behave. They're, they're more, um, they're much more, much more flexible than we have been thinking of them. You know, we put a label on them and then it's, that's what the dog is. He's an aggressive dog, not that he demonstrated an act of aggression, which incidentally with, I think only one exception is an indication of fear and that's a whole different approach to aggression. And what is the one thing that probably is the exception? A uh, uh,
1: uh, 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 mother
2: protecting her baby puppies. There you go. There you go. It's like, don't you touch my babies, kid.
1: <laughs> In
2: terms, that's of still the fear, well- though.
1: That's still fear that something bad will happen to their puppies. So it's, right. it's, it's still but fear. We
2: should we should recognize that if you were trying to adopt a dog, a puppy. And they said, oh, you can't go near mom with her puppies. You don't want one of those puppies because mom is teaching them to be afraid Mm -hmm. or to behave in an aggressive fashion. So mom has some issues that you do not want passed on to the puppies, which can start in utero. Wow. So yes, it is a normal thing, Uh, but she should not feel threatened just because you walk over there to say hello. Right. Protecting her babies, of course. But if she is definitely off the charts, don't anybody come in the room? uh, Hello? That's not the kind of of inheritance that we want those puppies to have and be in our home. Hmm.
1: Okay? All right. Trust the science. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with
2: Charlotte. Okay. Pet food news. This is from Susan Fixton, The Truth About Pet Food. And she says, what do 10 years of recalls tell us? Kibble was the number one style recalled pathogenic bacteria was the number one cause. But the most startling statistic confirms the FDA fails pet owners. No surprises there. Mm -hmm. So she goes on to say in the past 10 years, January 2012 to October 2021, more than 327 million pounds of pet food has been recalled.
1: Well, well, well. Could you repeat that number?
2: 327 million pounds. Oh my God. He says it's similar to the weight of 91,000 sport utility vehicles. That may be easier to visualize.
1: Uh-huh. I can't
2: imagine 91,000 of anything. Okay. The causes of recalls and pounds within each category are highlighted in a graphic here. So we've got, Excess thyroid gland, 254,000 pounds. That was the biggest hunk. Excess insufficient vitamin or mineral, 13 million. And that was 92% cans. The thyroid gland, incidentally, uh, excess was all cans. Pathogenic bacteria, um, oh, the thyroid is the very minimal, excuse me. Pathogenic bacteria is the big one with 159 million, and that's primarily kibble. It's 98% kibble and 1.2% raw, okay? Raw. <laughs> yeah. All right, foreign objects, £1, 737 uh, pounds with can, 98% raw, 1.7%. Mold. 167,000 pounds, kibble, 30%, other 59, it doesn't explain what. Aflatoxin, which is um, an infection that is generally associated with corn, 60,460,000 pounds, kibble, 100%. And mm-hmm. fentobarbital, which we know is the old, is the drug that is used to euthanize animals, 91 million pounds, and it is specifically addressing canned food. Okay, so the worst year she says for recalls was 2013 with 125 million pounds of pet food recalled. The very next year, 2014, we saw the least amount with only 227,000 pounds. Hmm. How can the pounds of pet food recalled vary so dramatically in two years? Because pet owners are at the mercy of regulatory discretion with recalls, with the exception of pest owners, forcing regulatory to take action via test results. Pet owners are given no guarantee regulatory authorities will investigate a potential issue with a pet food through a consumer complaint. Even if an issue is investigated, there is no guarantee that pet food will be recalled. As an example... She says, an FDA notice published in 2016 stated, and this is a quote, during 2012, the College of Veterinary Medicine received approximately three consumer complaints per month associated with Nestle Purina Beneful dry dog food. Beneful stuff makes me crazy. In January 2013, CVM received a surge of consumer complaints that occurred after a media report implicated Beneful dry food as a potentially harmful dog food product, end of quote. Because the agency received a surge of consumer complaints regarding Beneful, FDA investigated three Purina manufacturing plants. The FDA investigation stated the agency found no direct cause for the many pet illness complaints, but the agency did find samples of Beneful contained Ethicloxan, a preservative, oh, well, mm. that's a cancer-causing pre- preservative, incidentally, and, and that was not disclosed on the label, the formula and ingredient changes that were not disclosed on the label. And six samples of benefit tested by the FDA contained, a uh, um, quote, above the allowable level for cyanuric acid and amylide, which is melamine, the cause of the deadly 2007 recalls. All right, go, 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 go FDA. <laughs> Any of these issues could have resulted in a recall, but the FDA Center for Veterinary Medicine decided to provide, quote, educational outreach to Nestle Purina corporate headquarters. Instead, CDN elected not to pursue regulatory actions against this incident. So they just talked to the company. That was, and and they just shook their finger at him. Got a little slap on the wrist. Yeah, Yeah, shouldn't do that, kids. All right. Okay, so over the past 10 years, the causes of recalls were one pathogenic bacteria. The number one cause of rec- uh, food recalls with pathogenic bacteria. Almost 49% of all pet food recalls over the past 10 years was for pathogenic bacteria. More than 159 million pounds have been recalled. And while the FDA and the CDC continually warn pet owners of the risks of pathogenic bacteria in raw pet foods, raw pet foods contain were only 1.2% of the total in that segment. I think maybe we've got the pet food companies getting a a little powerful here. (laughs) So they're causing all but 1.2% of it and and raw is being blamed. Kibble, on the other hand, which FDA has never warned pet owners to the risks of pathogenic bacteria, is 98% of the segment. Of the brands that were recalled for pathogenic bacteria, the then owned by Procter & Gamble Natura brand was responsible for 75%. They, they've gotten out of the pet, the dog food business, incidentally. Good. Even though kibble pet foods were responsible for 98% of this category, kibble pet foods were only recalled for pathogenic bacteria in six of the last 10 years. After a very bad 2012 and 2013, kibble recalls gradually decreased down to zero for four years. Why was there such a dramatic difference in the last 10 years? This can perhaps be explained by another type of regulatory discretion. Uh The FDA (laughs) used to have a compliance policy specific to Kibble Pet Food, the the capital C-P-G section 690,700, salmonella contamination of dry pet food, unquote. This policy stated, in a case involving salmonellosis diagnosed in a mother, daughter, and the family dog, The Milwaukee Health Department traced the cause to a dry dog food, and a recall resulted. Following the recall, the College of Veterinary Medicine initiated an abbreviated inspection and analytical survey of a representative number of manufacturers of finished dry food products to explore an industry claim, I love this one, that it is an impossibility to manufacture this type of product without salmonella contamination. What? Yeah, uh uh-huh. That's right. That's what they say. Mm -hmm. Now, keep in mind, salmonella is not a serious threat to your dog's health. It's more a threat to the people handling the food because dogs' guts, their intestinal tract is very short compared to humans. And in general, they can harbor E. coli and salmonella in the gut and never have any symptoms. Whereas humans have a long track, lots of time for the bacteria to make buddies and, and produce lots of little babies and sisters and they will make you sick. Okay. But it's okay for them to have, it's impossible. All right. Okay. Well, well.
1: But can't it build up in the dog?
2: So no, let's say the dog apparently. is
1: eating this, this no. food with the salmonella over and over again, it doesn't build up and it doesn't, it doesn't build
2: up. Oh, okay. No. but it is a, it is a threat. And, it's, it's something that needs to be addressed because of the humans handling it. Okay. So this compliance policy disappeared from the FDA website in 2013. By coincidence, this FDA compliance policy that made a very incriminating statement regarding kibble pet food disappeared from the FDA website hmm. after the agency had multiple meetings with pet food industry representatives <laughs> hmm. Hmm. So in February 2013, FDA CDM Director Bernadette Dunham met with multiple representatives of Purina Pet Car Care. Also in February 2013, the FDA CDM Director Bernadette Dunham met with, dip, met with multiple representatives of the Pet Food Institute. In 2013, <laughs> June, FDA CDM Director Bernadette Dunham met again with multiple representatives of Purina Pet Care. Okay. And in June of 2013, FDA CDM Director Bernadette uh, Dunham met with multiple representatives of the National Grain and Feed Association, whose members include pet food manufacturers. Gee, and they didn't find anything wrong. She were going to
1: meet with dog owners? Ha. Huh.
2: One month after the last meeting of the pet food industry, FDA withdrew the incriminating compliance policy, but the meetings with FDA continued. Representatives of kibble Kibble pet food manufacturers continued to meet with FDA in 2013 and and early 2014. In January 2014, representatives Purina, Mars, P&G, and the Pet Food Institute met with FDA regarding FDA's zero-tolerance policy for salmonella in pet food, and by coincidence kibble pet food recalled for pathogenic bacteria went down to zero for four consecutive years after that, after the meeting with the FDA. Pentobarbital, this is the the number two. This is the second leading cause of pet food recalls, a drug used to euthanize animals, which means generally dogs and cats. It could be a guinea pig or a rabbit, but you're, you're talking pets that are euthanized. More than 91 million pounds of pet food, all canned, had been recalled because they contained a euthanized animal residue. Yeah. All 91 million pounds were recalled because of the actions of two pet owners, not regulatory monitoring. In early 2017, a pet owner in Washington state experienced all five of her dogs becoming seriously ill after immediate, almost immediately after eating a pet food. Evanger's uncle beat canned dog food. One did not survive. This pet owner made a future changing decision to have a necropsy performed on her dog. Necropsy is what is applied to animals, autopsy is for humans, which found the euthanizing drug pentobarbital within the dog food, in the dog's stomach. The necropsy results were provided to FDA, and a recall followed. After the Avengers recall, a pet-owning television station journalist in Washington, D.C., decided to test 62 cans of various brands of dog food, and found pentobarbital in nine cans manufactured by smuckers. Those lab results were provided to FDA too, which resulted in more recalls. Because the actions of these two people, not regulatory oversight, more than 91 million pounds of dangerous pet foods were removed from store shelves. Okay. Um, uh, There was another contamination of pentobarbital, and this time the, the FDA did not force a recall. That was in 2018. Okay. Uh, I wonder whose side they're on. Okay. Number three aflatoxin. The third least causing, the third leading cause of pet food recalls over the past 10 years was for a deadly aflatoxin contamination. More than 60 million pounds of pet food were recalled, all were kibble. More than 99% of the aflatoxin recalls occurred in 2021 and the last four months of 2020. Aflatoxin is a mycotoxin. They are mold prone to grain ingredients. Corn is very susceptible to mold, especially feed grade, pet food grade corn. So never, ever buy any dog food that has corn anywhere on the label. And that's the stuff that you're buying in the supermarkets, incidentally. And corn is the number one most commonly used ingredient in pet foods. 700,000 tons more corn is used in pet food than any other ingredient. Human foods cannot contain any level of aflatoxin, but pet food is allowed to contain a maximum of 20 parts per per billion. One kernel of aflatoxin-contaminated corn in five pounds could result in more than the 20 parts per billion. The manufacturer that recalled the most pet food for aflatoxin contamination was Midwestern pet food with more than 58 million pounds, recalled 98% of all aflatoxin recalled. Okay. Consumers sent a letter to FDA Center for Veterinary Medicine in February 2021 requesting the agency properly monitor the pet food industry for deadly mycotoxins, the third leading cause of recalls. But the agency failed to respond to even acknowledge um, the request. Mm-hmm. Couldn't even do that. Number four, excess or insufficient vitamins or minerals. And you may remember from listening to us that there was a, a huge recall of the excess of vitamin D recently, right. which is causes a lot of serious problems. They need vitamin D, but not in excess. The fourth leading cause of pet food recalls over the last 10 years was due to the products containing an excessive level or insufficient level of vitamins and minerals. The manufacturer with the largest portion of this recall is, drum roll please, Hills. Hills, the stuff that's in your vet's office that he recommends all the time. The manufacturer with the largest portion of the, the recall, 81%. Estimated 10 million pounds for excess vitamin D in 2019. Okay. Um, We asked FDA for the product total recalled and they responded. The overall total was 1,445,202 cases. Number five, foreign object. In the past 10 years, more than 1.7 million pounds of pet food has been recalled because of a foreign object being included in the product. That's a lot of pounds for something foreign. Okay. And it was primarily canned 98%, I think was canned pet food. We're talking, I've seen some pictures where there were pieces of metal in there, plastic labels that got into the bin somehow. Okay. Um, The manufacturer with the largest portion of this recall, Mars. What is Mars doing in the pet food industry? (laughs) Nothing good. Nothing good. Mold. In the past 10 years, more than 167,000 pounds of pet food have been recalled for containing mold. 69% were from Iams, one of the top brands, so to call, that's a conundrum, but one of the top brands that you'll see, Iams, very big pricey, I I think. It was owned by Procter & Gamble, not any longer. Um, And seven excess thyroid gland. So we're talking in terms of millions of these things. And she says, the most startling statistic of all, more than 149 million pounds of pet food recalled over the last 10 years, 45%, was only recalled because pet owners investigated, tested, and proved to regulatory authorities why their pets died. FDA didn't discover these issues. State regulatory authorities didn't discover these issues. Pet owners did. All of the pentobarbital recalls and the majority of the aflatoxin recalls were directly due to pet owners. They had necropsies performed. They tested pet foods, and then they turned over their test results to regulatory authorities, forcing them to investigate the brands, which finally led to recalls. Without their actions... 149 million pounds of pet food could have remained on store shelves, sickening or killing thousands of pets waiting for regulatory to properly monitor pet food. The FDA center for veterinary medicine should be ashamed of this statistic. Pet owners are encouraged to report this statistic to their elected officials demanding they investigate the FDA's methods of regulating pet food. If your pet becomes ill or dies, you believe is cause buy a pet food, please report it to FDA. Each incident needs to be officially recorded by, by FDA, but don't hesitate to take matters into your own hands too. Dr. Lori Koger can help pet owners with testing of pet food. She can be contacted. There is a link there. You'd have to go to Susan Thixton's site. Should your pet die you be, and you believe is linked to a pet food, a necropsy could give you the evidence you would need to hold the manufacturer accountable and possibly save the lives of thousands of other pets. As the past 10 years of example, we can't always count on regulatory authorities to protect our pets. We have to recognize that we dare not attempt to credit them with any help. It's just not going to happen. We've got to be more responsible. And what I'm hoping, of course, is you begin to recognize how important it is to take responsibility for what you're feeding your dogs and your cats. And I think the safe way to do it is by preparing at home. I recognize that a lot of people just feel that they, they are not able to do that time-wise, but be very careful with what you buy. And I suspect that anything on the shelves in the, in the local market, supermarket, not the, at stores that have all kinds of things, but basically what's going to be something advertised on TV that's on the shelves and that you can pick up a bag uh, are, are going to be the greatest source of these things happening. So, Wow.
1: 45% of the recalls were due
2: because the dog owners did something about their sick That's dogs. right. And that meant that they paid money to have their dogs necropsied and, and the food was in the gut tested. So
1: what about all that other food that is still on the shelves that is probably contaminated? That's right. right. Lord knows what.
2: Yeah. No, FDA and AAFCO are not addressing these issues. They are not taking care of you. And I read recently someplace, I don't remember what it was, but one of the attorneys that was the head of these organizations uh, was it was, the, it was a case of the fox, and uh, I got in the hen house. You know, it was an attorney representing these organizations, with being, being, but hired by or working for some pet food industry people. Oh, so, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Uh, hello, well, folks. Come on.
1: As we've read and talked about before, the FDA, quote unquote, uses discretion yeah. when they decide they want to protect us and our dogs.
2: Right. They'll use their discretion about. Recalling or about banning these foods, um, that they they have announced openly. That one of the major figureheads for the industry that he announced that he doesn't see any reason to restrict euthanized animals from being that's, in the in the food. It's like, that's really? so crazy. That is so so crazy. Yeah, and remember that these are pets that were euthanized, you know, people don't euthanize cattle. They're, they're put to death in some other way. Um, but we're talking in terms of euthan the euthanized drug. So you're talking in terms of cats and dogs being in the food you're giving to your pets.
1: Yes. You're pets. saying that my previous pet could be now in my new pet. Yeah. Along with the drug that ended its life. Right. Oh my goodness gracious! It's so scary, and not only that. This had mentioned a lot of uh contamination in the canned
2: feed. We have never really addressed yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. The canned food was responsible source, or or they were the big percentage of the cans. Hundred percent the pentobarbital, and that kind of scares
1: me too because. When we're trying, you and I, when we are trying to convince folks to get off of the kibble, one of the things that we have said before is, in the interim, maybe
2: use canned food. Absolutely. I'm, I, I, I'm guilty of doing that. I didn't realize that we also had to be aware of what the the, the inside tin is, that there is um, a product that there was something that that is on the inside of the cans that has to be watched for. I don't remember what they call it. But yes, I I have been a strong promoter of making a transition to human foods, or even just sticking with canned foods, which is obviously more costly. But one of the reasons it's more costly is that it's a higher percentage of meat in the food, as compared to carbohydrates in the dry food. It doesn't mean that all canned foods are free of carbohydrates. If you're buying the least expensive in the market, on the shelf, the chances are there are carbs in there too. So you have to learn how to read the labels. And as we've talked about this before, keep in mind that while we believe that the um, the adage what we're told is that the first ingredient means it is the ingredient that is the most of in the product. But you have to learn how to read the labels. So if they split something like corn, they can have it in a number of ways: corn meal, corn, whatever. I mean there are half a dozen different ways to say corn. If they are all added up, they become number one of the percentage that's in the tin or in the package. And that's something that people are not made aware of and I think we try to push that point. You have to learn to read the t- the, the labels carefully, particularly the top five ingredients, and don't be impressed when the packaging says, "and there are blueberries and carrots and green beans and whatever." And if you read carefully the list of ingredients, and you get down to the point, which I did with Beneful at one point, and I think that they, they produce uh, on the package, which at one time was illegal to do to present something on the package that was not a major part of the product, that that law was erased. But I think Beneful presents these fresh green beans and peas and carrots on the front. Turns out, I believe they start at ingredient 18 and they're dehydrated when they go in, which means a carrot walks through the kitchen during packaging time. <laughs>
1: Oh, goodness gracious. Yes, that is why we promote the home-prepared meal.
2: Yes, and species-specific, okay?
1: All right, that uh, does it for this hour. And uh, I'm only going to do a very short wrap-up, as I have a request for our listeners. So we started off talking about... uh, the, the book that Charlotte just finished, Decoding Your Dog, and it was written by the College of Certified Vet Behaviorists. And we read from the foreword by Victoria Stilwell. And then we also talked about dog food recalls. And this was from Pet Food News and Susan Thixton, and of course her website, Truth About Pet Food. We would love to hear from you. This show is supposed to be about helping you as a dog owner. Unfortunately, it is a podcast, so we don't take we can't take call-ins and stuff like that. But Charlotte really wants to hear from you. If you listen to this program, please, please shoot us an email at livingwithyourdog@gmail.com. at Living with your dog at gmail.com. Shoot us an email, tell us you're listening. Shoot us an email telling telling us you like the show. Shoot us an email telling that you don't like the show. Send us an email with your comments, concerns and requests about your furry friend, your cat or your dog. Charlotte wants to help you. Ain't that right, Charlotte?
2: That's right. And if it's something you don't like, we really want to know that, too. Uh, you know, what is it that you don't like and why? And maybe we can remedy. Maybe we can't. There's a possibility that you just don't like me. That's all right. I mean, you know, <laughs> you don't like me time. piping
1: up too much and butt- and, and <laughs> jumping
2: know? all over Charlotte's
1: words. I would love to hear that. You know, constructive <laughs> criticism is good, too. <laughs> so please shoot us an email, livingwithyourdog@gmail.com. You can also uh, post uh, comments to our Facebook page. All right. Okay. So please shoot us an email, livingwithyourdog@gmail.com. All right, Charlotte, All right. before we head out, do you have any last words for us? Yes.
2: Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. Dean Kuntz.
1: living with your dog living with your dog living with your dog with charlotte
0: isn't that cool check out all the podcasts brought to you by redwood sound labs finally a podcast that's dedicated to talking about your favorite sports movies whether you want to hear a breakdown of the plot arguments about who's the mvp of the film or crit and lit about it you'll find it all on fields of glory Listen to the show that will help you live a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in the podcast Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two horror movie enthusiasts of varying experience discussing horror movies through the scope of content, context, and comedy. They'll hit on the good ones in the classics, but they're really excited for the bad ones. Listen to Watch No Evil. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L War Project.